Hello, everyone, and welcome to the second century of the crux of the story. This is episode 101. This is Gary Sheffer, and I'm a professor of public relations at Boston University's College of Communication. I'm here with my co-host, Mike Fernandez, the chief communications officer at global energy company Enbridge. Hello, Mike. Hi, how you doing, Gary? Looking Absolutely. forward to our discussion today. Um, I've read a number of his pieces, and he's, he's, he's also got a wonderful book out on the market. Yeah. So that guest, uh, and we're really pleased to have him with us, is Ron Carucci. He's an author. Uh, he's a TEDx speaker and co-founder and managing partner at Navalent, where he works with CEOs and executives pursuing transformational change for their organizations, for their leaders, and the industries that they operate in. Ron has helped organizations articulate strategies that lead to accelerated growth and design organizations that can execute those strategies, always important. He is the author or co-author of eight books, including uh, the Amazon bestseller, Rising to Power, The Journey of Exceptional Executives with Eric Hansen, and To Be Honest, which is the book we really want to talk about today, Lead with the Power of Truth, Justice, and Purpose, which was named one of Bloomberg's best books of 2021. It's based on a 15-year study exploring what creates honesty, including 3,200 interviews with employees at all levels of organizations. Ron, welcome to the crux of the story. Welcome to The Crux. Each week, two of the world's top communicators take you behind the scenes of the news of the day to explore the crux of communications that are shaping business, politics, and our daily lives. Hello, this is Gary Shepard. Hi, I'm Mike Fernandez, and we're glad to be with you from Boston University. Gary, Mike, so good to be with you. Thanks so much for having me. So let's start, uh, Ron, with your firm, Navalent which, as I mentioned, focuses on leadership coaching and organizational design for your clients. What was the inf- impetus for you in creating Navalent? Well, so that's eight, we have to go back 18 years. And I think, you know, uh, th- those of us who f- were firm founders were all industrial organizational psychology majors and worked. F- some of us worked for a wonderful firm in New York City uh, that where the, the, the sort of the noble work of IO Psych was central to what we did. It wasn't a side dish like it is mm-hmm. in many consultancies. When that firm got sold to a bigger firm, it stopped being fun. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we decided that we just love this work too much. We think it needs to be central to how leaders shape their enterprises. And we didn't need to go to keep doing it with a big firm. We could go do it on our own. We never said the words, let's go start a firm, which is really important because we all right. like the, the most the most accidental entrepreneurs ever. Of course, immediately as we sort of <laughs> set sail as a set of small friends to go do this work, we realized if we we're, we're going to take on larger projects, we need more help. And so we, you know, we grew, <laughs> kept saying, we're actually, we're running a firm now. We're not just doing this work. We're running a firm. Uh, and so over the 18 years, you know, we've had our ups and downs as a firm. We've, all, we've had a wonderful and very proud track record of impact over these, actually almost 19 years now. Excellent. A, yeah. a collection of executives and, and transformations that we're, we're humbled by, that we're still here, still doing what we love to do and bringing along younger practitioners with us to help. help. Uh, maybe, this is a bad, I, maybe this is a bad question, Ron, about the firm. 
but uh, we tend to think in these terms in business. How big are you today? How much have you grown? We, we've grown and contr- we've been as high as 20-something employees. Now we're about 12. Okay. Um, the problem with being a really exceptional firm in your field is that people figure out how to poach from you. <laughs> and so when we, we, do, we cultivate really high world-class IO psych talent, uh, and then as they're back to become partners or take on books of business or become leaders in the firm, Netflix calls or Amazon calls yeah. or big exactly. systems call and make offers we can't compete with. And so that's happened a number of times over the years as we've grown. And then as we're about to sort of solidify that talent, and I, we can't can't blame people for wanting to continue to grow their careers or go do other right. things. But exactly. that's well, it's part and parcel of being good at what we do is we make good talent. At GE, I had to run sometimes call other companies, particularly the banks, and say, okay, that's enough poaching. <laughs> we do a lot of business with you. That's enough poaching. So, yeah. uh, so you know, Mike and I have spent our careers in public relations, and that job um, as a trusted counselor to some senior executives often involves coaching, uh, which is some of the work, obviously, that you focus on. What's the difference between being a coach and a consultant? And maybe you can describe it, Ron, based on some of the work you've done with executives. Well, certainly, I mean, there are there are some schools of discipline that that would say never the two should meet. Right. Um, not my clients. My clients would never want me to be one or the other. I think coaching comes from a school of inquiry. A lot of people think that coaching should be purely Socratic. I don't. Um, I think coaching is a blend of, you know, therapeutic work, behavioral shaping work, and also advisory work. Mm-hmm. Um, for us at Navalent, um, we, as systems engineers, don't. So most of our field has subdivided into three what we call our code languages within, between, among, change within a leader, change between leaders in different parts of the organization, and change systemically, culturally, governance, strategically, structurally. We don't see those as three things. We see that as one thing. If I work on your behavior as a leader, there are going to be immediate implications for your team. If I shape the work of your team, you as a leader have to change. If you're the CEO, the culture will change as a result. Mm-hmm. If I'm not looking at all three of those I, those indicators of change and keeping those things in line, I'm going to do more harm than good. And so while you can go hire the coaches or the team builders or the culture builders or the strategists, and the marketplace buying pattern doesn't look at it that way, um, I think part of the, what's behind our incredible track record of success is that we don't force leaders to think in those bifurcated artificial terms, right? To them, it's all one thing. Right. And it needs to be that way to those who, who advise you. Yeah. Hey, Ron, as you think about behaviors and you think about change, I mean, one of the topics that has come up a lot in recent years is the nature of trust. Um, how does Navalent work with organizations or work with leaders to build cultures worthy of public trust? So I think we are squarely stuck in a trust recession <laughs> these days. Um, and earning and keeping trust is so much harder than we once thought it was. It's no longer a matter of not breaching public trust that you get to keep it. The things you care about, the ways you invest your money, the 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 level of transparency. I mean, that's what we did the the fifteen year study for to understand mm-hmm. what are the factors 
that create trust. And, it, and so many executives take for granted that their good intentions will carry the day. I intend to be trustworthy. Whenever I ask leaders, do your people trust you? There's always this incredulous, well, why wouldn't they trust me? That's right. Which tells me that their intentions are, I'll say then one, why do they? Yeah. And I will get a list of good intentions. I'm, I, I tell them the truth or I, I get behind their backs or I, you know, I'm, all these things yeah. that in your mind are true. But if I were to go ask your employees, they would not confirm that. Yeah. Are, are there any good case studies out there about organizations that have actually successfully built this culture of public trust? Oh, so there are so many. That was, I mean, part of the, part of the reason that, to be honest, became a book, because it didn't start out to be a book that wasn't its goal. Mm-hmm. But when I realized how many hero stories and hero organizations were worthy of telling, that's what made me want to write the book. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't want to, I was tired of writing about the villains. We, yeah. Well, it was interesting when I first saw the title, you know, to be honest, um, my, my first, my first sensibility was why a book for leaders about honesty? Do leaders have a problem with honesty? <laughs> no, no one would say that. <laughs> today, today, what's the, har- the hardest and probably the cruelest reality of leadership is that you start distrusted. Yeah. It used to be that you would be trusted because you were a leader. Right. Um, but today, you, if you go from being somebody's peer to being their boss, you go into a trust deficit. Mm. That people all you assume you've now gone gone to the dark side. You're now going to be one of them. And so, are there things that, that that new leaders can do that help that transition that limit that trust deficit? Absolutely, and most leaders don't do it. This was what our last book, Rise into Power, was all about: is how do you make that transition to senior leadership in a way that is not just you know, we, we, we've known for 20 years that more than half of the leaders that make that transition fail within 18 months. One of which is reasons is because they don't, they don't renegotiate or recontract in those relationships. Mm-hmm. And the, the hard reality is that when you go from being a peer to a, an executive, you know, people who are your bosses are now your peers. People who are your peers are now direct reports. People who were direct reports don't see you anymore. And all those relationships have to get recontracted. Mm-hmm. One by one, um, you, some of those things will have to change. Some of them, things can you can keep the same. But if you don't go have the conversation, you can bet that they're all going to take for granted that it's going to go the way they want it to go. They're going to curry favor with you. They're going to assume they have an in. They're going to stop telling you things that they used to tell you. <laughs> and all of a sudden, you, you're going to have these concocted narratives about who you are and about what you said. You're going to hear yourself quoted in things you never said. Mm-hmm. And you have to be ready for all those realities and you have to be able to talk about them with people. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are some things you can no longer talk about that you used to talk about. And you have to um, redefine those relational boundaries in new ways, very intentionally before they slip. Mm-hmm. Any quick tips, like the two or three things maybe that a, a new leader should do? Sit down with each of those people and say, hey, our relationship has changed. How do we want it to go? Yeah. And define here are things you might expect from me that you used to expect from me that you can no longer expect from me. Yeah. Get used to the fact that the politics at higher at, at higher altitudes, it's the air is a little thinner mm-hmm. at higher altitudes and you have to breathe mm-hmm. differently. Mm-hmm. You know, get used mm-hmm. to the fact that people who are now your peer set will test you. They will haze you. They will try and figure you out. If you are not really solidified the values by which you want to lead, you're going to waffle. And so be very clear mm-hmm. on the principles that are non-negotiable for you. 
and the convictions with which you want to be known by before they get defined by others. By yeah. someone else. Yeah, going quickly back to to be honest, the book, you define honesty as telling the truth and saying the right thing. How does one know they are saying the right thing? Let's say in the midst of a crisis. Well, to be clear, it's uh, so honesty is defined as truth, justice, and purpose. What we've learned in the research was that it's no longer just enough to be truthful. You have to say the right thing, do the right thing, and say and do the right thing for the right reason. It's all three. You, If you just say the right thing, you might get labeled as reliable or having being blunt but you to get labeled honest as honest you have to do all three things you would know you're saying the right thing by the response you get from those you're saying it to if they're wincing or they're murmuring or they're going in and acting upon what you said in ways entirely contradictory to what you intended you probably didn't say the right thing or you didn't say it well or you confused them i'm sure in your profession you have come across countless leaders who have taken your advice and and twisted it in ways and what came out of their mouth had nothing to do with what you told them to say. Because through that filter of their own anxiety, their own insecurity, their own egos, their own fears, their own narcissism, um, came a set of words that made perfectly good sense to them and not to anybody else who heard them. You know, that's so true. I wish I had talked to you 20 years ago. Uh, <laughs> when I went from an individual contributor at GE to running this four or 500 person communications organization globally it was the hardest thing I ever had to sure. do in my career to, I love the word recalibrate relationships with people, you know, who sat next door to you and you, you know, BS with every morning over coffee, suddenly they're a direct report. Lots, lots to take away there. By the way, I, I want to get back to the, the, the book and the sense of honesty. I thought Mike asked you a good question about how do you know if you say the right thing? Sometimes in business, you don't know whether what you're saying is true. <laughs> you know, in our positions, in other words, I used to ask people as we were thinking about communication strategies, is that true? And they would respond, well, it's true-ish, <laughs> right? And so you have to develop sources inside the organization where you know you're getting the honest facts. It's, uh, I think, leaders... Well, I think today social media has sort of neutralized the notion that you can pull the wall over anybody's eyes. Right, <clears throat> And there's, right. um, there isn't true-ish anymore. It's, I mean, you'll be found yeah. out in 0.08 seconds. Mm -hmm. that exactly, exactly. You know, I've had many leaders, you could see privately wrestle with the notion of if I believed it was true at the time, was it a lie? Um, and the answer is yes, it was because yes. you, you yes, didn't take the time to find out, to, to validate it. Why did you believe it was true? Mm -hmm. And often if you mm -hmm. dig up underneath that question, it's because I wanted to believe it was true. And mm -hmm. so I, there, exactly. there were, there were things I turned a blind eye to. There were sources I didn't intentionally go check. There were conflicting points of view I knew existed that I didn't go verify. And by de, de facto, then you did lie. Mm. Because today your homework as a leader is you've got to go. If you're not actively seeking disconfirming information, you're not doing your job. Yeah. As I, I tell my students, I, I'm teaching crisis communication this semester, is that you have to be an investigative reporter within mm -hmm. these organizations, particularly in a crisis, right? To get to, because people will conceal, they will deflect. Oh, yeah. They'll lie. Um, They'll make stuff up. And 
Yeah. They'll certainly exactly. uh, embellish well, she... and exaggerate. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of The Crux. On The Crux, we discuss the intersection of communications, business, and society. Follow us at The Crux on Facebook and Twitter. You can also find our episodes on SoundCloud, Spotify, iTunes, and on our website at thecruxpodcast.org. Now, let's get back to the episode. So let's get into some of the details of the book, which is terrific. You identify four key factors that affect honesty. What are those four factors, Ron? So the first was a clear, consistent identity. Be who you say you are. Right? You have words on your walls that convey what you intend to be. You have values, purpose statements, missions, brand mm-hmm. promises. And turns out that if you if those words and your actions match, you're three times more likely to have people be honest with you. But if they don't, if they're just cosmetic words and uh, people's lived experiences you know, de- depart from those words, you've now institutionalized duplicity. You've now told people around here it's okay to say one thing and do another, <laughs> which means that that's, that's what they'll do. Now you're three times more likely to have them lie. Um, the second was um, accountability with dignity and justice, meaning that how my contribution is talked about, measured, um, and honored is fair. I have as much of a chance of succeeding mm-hmm. as anybody else around here, no matter who I am or what I look like. Um, and the, and because of today's workplace, the work is no longer how many cases did you close, how many files did you think, how many t-shirts did you print. Today, it's what were your ideas? What was your analysis? What was your perspective? What mm-hmm. was your feedback? Today, the contribution and the contributor are more fused than ever. When you talk about my work, you are talking about me. It's no longer, it's not personal. It's very personal. And if that work is dignified uh, and fair, you are four times more likely to have me be honest. But if the system is rigged, if I feel like I'm a cog in your wheel, if there are roles around here that are privileged, that disadvantage me, now you're four times more likely to have me lie because now I have to embellish my accomplishments and hide my mistakes. Governance, transparency. You know, if I walk into a room of people, often referred to as a meeting, and um, I sit down at that table, and what I believe is happening in the room is an honest exchange of information. The person at the front of the room presenting doesn't have an agenda. They're giving me balanced sides of the story. Um, and if I were to offer a point of view that was different than the one prevailing in the room, I'd be welcome to do that. Um, that's transparency and governance. That means now you're three and a half times more likely to have me be honest. But if I walk into that room wow. and it's nothing more than orchestrated theater where everybody's nodding their heads in the direction that the person in the front of the room is telling them to nod, there are clearly pieces of information missing from the point of view. And there's a, a prevailing direction that the person presenting wants me to go with. And the last thing I mm-hmm. think you want to hear is a different point of view from me. Now you're three and a half times more likely to have me lie because now for me to get the truth, I have to go underground. It's not going to come out in the room. And then lastly, uh, probably the most surprising factor was cross-functional relationships, the seams, right? So the rivalries that happen, sales and marketing, supply chain and operations, HR and everybody. Oh my goodness, the, the, yes. When those, when those cross-functional <laughs> rivalries, communications and marketing, right? When those yes. rivalries um, are not well attended to, meaning there's intractable conflict at the seams, we have lots of we's and they's, you're six times more likely to have people be dishonest because when we fragment the organization, we fragment the truth. But if those seams are stitched well, meaning that there's a a healthy tensions that are good where the conflict can be held and people recognize that the competitive value they create is, is bigger than their own function, that innovation is a result of marketing analytics, 
you know, R&D and manufacturing. Now you're six times more likely to have people tell the truth because now we're all part of a bigger story. Um, so, and the interesting thing about the statistical models is that they're accumulative. So if you're good at all four of those things, you're 16 times more likely to have people be honest. But if you suck at all wow. four of those things, you're 16 times more likely to put yourself on a New York Times headline that you never wanted to be in. Can you give us a, that's fantastic. I, I love those four, four factors. Can you give us an example from your book about the power of honesty and leadership? Gosh, yeah, the book, I mean, the book is wonderfully full of them. It was the, 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 the thrill of writing it. Um, so let's do one from sort of a, sort of in your neighborhood um, over in Vermont there, Cabot Creamery. Ed Talman okay. was CEO there. He's a, he's a major case study in the book. And boy, if you know anything about dairy cooperatives, you know that they're anything but cooperative. Um, right. <laughs> you, know, you have the interests of the farmers and the interests of the manufacturer that sometimes don't align. And what Ed inherited there was, a, was, was tough. His opening move as CEO was discovering that there was fraud being committed in his organization by members of his team. He could have just fired them, but he knew right. that, that he get, it's Vermont. It's a small state. People are going to find out. He had right. them indicted. He sent them to jail, which of course infuriated the farmers to find out that this was happening and why didn't they know? They assumed Ed must have known, which he didn't. And they wanted to know, was it going to keep happening? He said, I, I hope not, but if it does, you're going to hear about it. He then you know, found, found, went and found all the fragments between the board and the leadership team, between managers and their employees, between marketing and sales, all these fissures. And he systematically glued that organization together into a high performing team. And by the time he left, they, they had stopped winning awards. One of the best things he did was they were, you know, they were, Cabot was an award-winning cheesemaker and they had sort of their, their shine had, had stopped shining and they were being beaten. And in his investigation, the cheddar, the cheddar masters, as they're called, the cheese masters, in the different plants were doing things very differently, and they were having quality issues. So he did the, the most insulting thing he could do. He brought in somebody from Wisconsin, <laughs> teach them, which of course he knew would rile them to no end, but they would bond. Civil war. Right? And yeah. so once the Wisconsin advisors left, the three of these guys came together and were producing higher quality, more consistent cheddars. And, and at their 100th anniversary, they won more awards than ever. As an example of leadership courage, I mean, he's just one of many CEOs that I, that I profile. Well, but that's what it means to take integrity to a very serious place. Um, and the results speak for themselves. It brings a whole new idea to the word cheese head. Um, <laughs> uh, Ron, this, this also is interesting to me in the sense that, you know, leaders today face an enormous amount of challenges, particularly in the public realm. And in December, you wrote in uh, Harvard Business Review uh, an article that focused on how leaders should handle public criticism, uh, and especially in this era of kind of employee activism. Uh, the article, I guess, really caught my attention, maybe because I've lived it so many times, but you emphasize in my mind kind of two issues that, that, that are, are, are worth sort of having a little bit of a conversation about. One, how the executive should consider that challenge, and two, how the executive might or should respond in kind of the heat of the moment. In the first instance, you essentially say, my words, leaders should grow up. 
uh, realize they have a job to do and realize that life is not fair. What did you mean when you wrote that leaders should accept that it's part of the job? You know, it's the reality is that, and this is one of those transition moments that many executives aren't prepared for. Your life is on the jumbotron 24 seven. You have a <laughs> megaphone strapped to your mouth 24 seven. Everything you say is amplified and intensified. That's just the nature of organizational leadership. You, can, you can't control all the narratives and misinterpretations that are out there, but you can certainly minimize them if you accept that that's true. But many leaders don't like that reality and they hide or they, or they perform. The reality is you're going to get blamed for things that weren't your fault. You're going to get, get away with things that were your fault. And there'll be times when you get blamed for things that in fact were your fault. It's mm -hmm. just that you're, you're a dartboard. Um, whether it's fair mm -hmm. or not is irrelevant. It's not about fairness. That's just part of the job. And if, it's, if you haven't got the thick skin to be able to contend with those requirements, you probably don't need to be leading. Yeah. You know, one, one of the things that, that I really liked about the piece is the piece of advice you give to executives facing public criticism to filter conflicting advice through your values. And I, and, and I really felt you made the comment when things happen, HR professionals want to hold a town hall and legal wants to communicate nothing. You know, what do you mean when you say filter the conflicting advice through your values? You know, um, uh, you're going to have a line of people at your door telling you what to do, what not to do. But at the end of the day, mm -hmm. you're the one that has to stand up there and say something. Your, what, however you respond, whatever posture you take will create a permanent record of your character during crisis. Be very sure that that imprint of your character represents the values you want to be known by because it's going to be permanent and Google will make sure about it. And so if you're, you know, here are the experts. It's always good to have experts advice, but recognize yeah. they have a, they have a bias and a lens. Your, your, your peers, right? Have a very mm -hmm. your reputation protection kind of view about what words will do that. And they're going to conflict with legals or HRs or finances. Hear the advice, but at the end of the day, know that you're the vehicle through which those messages will transmit. And if they conflict with what you say you believe or value, that's the worst thing you can do. Doesn't matter how pretty they sound, doesn't matter how comfortable they are to say or hide behind. If they're mm -hmm. not true to who you are or who you say you are, you're going to regret it. And you, and you cannot take it back. It, it, it is a permanent record. And we've clearly seen that in, in public life where, where companies have said things that clearly are out of character with who they say yeah. they are, right? Well, and leaders. And, you know, mm -hmm. I mean, we've all seen the agonizing videos these last six, eight months of leaders, you know, performing their layoffs and faking their tears yeah. and looking... I mean, it's just gross. Where were your where were your peers then? Surely, yeah. none of your peers would have advised those leaders to do that, you know. But those mm -hmm. leaders, they're being authentic. Yeah. Well, let's scratch the surface on that a little bit because you do make the pitch for authenticity. How can a leader remain authentic in the face of controversy, in the face of public criticism? You know, one of the things that I, I'm, I've been deeply troubled by is the the, the the naysayers of authenticity saying you can't be too authentic. You can't be to yourself. You can't let <laughs> all the laundry out there. You know, what bothers me about that, it's like saying you're too pregnant. You can't be too, <laughs> you're either authentic or you're not. Mm -hmm. Being authentic right. doesn't mean you don't have to read the room. Being mm -hmm. authentic doesn't mean you don't have to have boundaries or you, have, you don't have to use discretion. The, these are not conflicting issues to authenticity. You have to be who you say you are. You also have to know who you're talking to. And I, I think mm -hmm. we, have we have conflated filterless with authentic. Yeah. I got and it. That's not the same thing. 
You're not being inauthentic mm-hmm. by tailoring a message, an honest message to an audience right. who are prepared to hear certain and need to hear certain things. But I would imagine context becomes very important in, in that. Context in is everything, Mike. Context is Thank everything. You. And you either ignore it at your peril or some people, some leaders, over, they try to exploit context, right? And manipulate the message for the context. People see right through that, that as well. The middle is what authentic, authentic means, right? I'm taking it to context. It's a great, it's the perfect word, Mike. I'm, I'm honoring the context, but I'm not leveraging it. And I'm not ignoring it. You know, Ron, Ron, this is how I discovered your work was that piece in HBR in December about how leaders should respond to public criticism. And it resonated with me because I think this is the central weakness of leaders that I see today. Now, Mike and I sit in unique positions where we're sometimes the buffer between the public criticism or the the responder mm-hmm. in many cases. Why are leaders not good at this? Is Are they not learning this kind of thing in well, business school? certainly not learning it there. The interviewee in my article says that this is what they don't prepare you for in business school. Yeah. I think most leaders think it won't happen to them. And most leaders think they don't deserve it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Or they think they haven't done anything to deserve it. Um, mm-hmm. I think in today's world, it's an inevitability. And so it's not right. just, it's not if, it's just when somebody in your organization is going to do so. It doesn't even matter if it's at the enterprise level. It can be you're a team leader and someone on your yeah. team, you know, makes an unwanted sexual exactly. advance at someone else on your team. Right. I mean, it's just, it's a, you're going to be the leader. Right. The spotlight will shine on you. Yeah. Ron, I, I can't begin to tell you how many people when I was consulting or inside companies or interviewing for a new job with a large company. And the CEO would say, well, you know, we've got things pretty well set here. And, you know, we've, we've, we've got our, our, our principles and our values. And so this is not going to be the same kind of challenge that you saw at XYZ Corporation. <laughs> um, and, 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 and I think that, you know, that, that it's, it's more than myopic uh, because at the end of the day, if you have an organization that's above a certain size, at some point, you're a microcosm of all the craziness that's outside. And you're going to have not just a Yahoo or two, but maybe a league of, of, of Yahoos that at some point are going to do something stupid, say something stupid, and you need to be prepared for Absolutely. it. Absolutely. Right? It's, I mean, the, when you, the minute you're telling yourself any, any self messaging that sounds like you're minimizing, dismissing, containing, um, you know, de comparing to other things, all, it's all just self-soothing. That's all it is. And any self-soothing you're doing is dangerous at a CEO level is dangerous, right? You are, yes. you are, you need to go. I, I mean, I, I don't want leaders to go to the other extreme of being paranoid and hypervigilant mm-hmm. and, you know, the, all the hunting down the, the you know, behavior that we sometimes see from leaders when they get triggered or activated that way. But to, to assume that uh, your enterprise is unassailable or your reputation is unassailable to the good word the yahoos is you're just inviting it you're just asking to be a target yeah, yeah. you know it, mike when you said that about conversations you've had with leaders i think about some of mine and i remember one 
talking to a CEO of a big global company. And uh, this person asked me, the CEO, how are you going to stop the criticism of our performance in a spec, you know, prospective way, you know, and particularly the financial performance of the company. And it's been brutal on us for the last, you know, 10 quarters or whatever. And I said, well, you have missed your numbers for the past 10 quarters. <laughs> there is a reason. There's, oh, that. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing I can do there. Right. Another uh, article you wrote in January in HBR uh, on a, a, a bit of a different topic, but uh, also about leadership, talked about success not leading to satisfaction. And, and I was really intrigued by this. You cite studies that show 72% of successful entrepreneurs suffer from depression or mental health concerns, and that CEOs may be depressed at more than double the rate of the public at large. What's going on? Here? I think for so long, we have lived in a very a world that has measured success by um, notoriety, by achievement, by mm. financial means, by the, 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 what we believe are the tangible trophies of life. But the social sciences have always told us that those things don't touch the soul and don't, don't lead mm -hmm. to lasting, meaningful um, joy in life. I think social media has intensified it as we publicly published salaries, as we've mm -hmm. um, you know, given the illusion of instant fame, but with clicks and likes and the, the, the other social media emblems. Um, and so I think we're, 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 we're facing a reckoning of the fact that what gives me true meaning in life, what gives me tr a true sense of purpose and uh, waking up in the morning and, be, and, and being glad that I'm really here has nothing to do with all of the scorekeeping we've done. Um, our, our enoughness barometers have been completely tampered with um, and we don't have a capacity to measure what's enough. When I ask leaders, well, how much money do you need to make or how much how many more awards do you want? Or how many followers do you feel like you need to have? And you always get the comparison. Well, well, so-and-so, that CEO got paid or this. <laughs> right. And, you know, I've had so many CEOs as I transitioned them into retirement would say the only thing I've ever failed at is retirement because they have no life outside of yeah. their identity. Their identity has become so uh, interchangeable with their role, with their position, with their status that there's nothing that gives them joy anymore. And um, yeah. so we, we have to reconcile now the things that truly give us a sense of being enough, not the sense of, not the things that give us a sense of having enough. Mm. Yeah. So how do you do that, Ron? How does somebody, as you write, recalibrate their enoughness gauge, which I think well, is a I great think, phrase. I think what, what was interesting to me in writing the piece was I think satisfaction is learned. It's a learned behavior. So is dissatisfaction. Mm. You know, the story that I begin the piece with is a, a leader who stopped me in my tracks last December. We were sort of having a year in review of his work. He had had, a, I mean, just a banner year. And he, his words to me were, you know, I was almost happy. And I thought, what? <laughs> he said he had met or exceeded all of his goals, but one particular goal that was really inconsequential, he had only partially exceeded. And I said, so you're telling me that if you had met that entire goal, you'd have been happy about all of it. But since you missed that one goal, you're not happy about any of it? He said, well, why should I be happy about failure? And it was just stunning to me. And of course, it was familiar. I had my own un often unhealthy relationship with achievement and uh, um, acknowledgments. 
But it, he had decided at the beginning of the year that satisfaction would mean meeting or exceeding all those goals, which means by default, he defined le- learning unsatisfaction as if that doesn't happen, I won't be satisfied. And I thought, gosh, how horrible that we all set ourselves up for that, that kind of disappointment when he had every reason to be just full of joy. And so I think we have to teach ourselves. We have to unlearn what we have defined as satisfaction and relearn what it means to teach ourselves with, by being satisfied by who we are and not what we have. Can, can I follow up on that, Ron, by asking, but for a CEO, for example, in the example that you provide, the pressure on mm-hmm. these leaders from the market, from activists, uh, activist investors to be perfect and to hit all their goals is immense. And it is unquestionably so. And I think those leaders who have not had the right kind of spinal cord installed uh, for the job, <laughs> some of them are actually on the spine donor list because they, just... <laughs> um, they will they will waffle to that pressure. You know, but look at CEOs uh-huh. like Gary Ridge. Look at CEOs like uh, Uber Jolie, or, uh-huh. or people who have said to their uh, their analysts, "I'm not giving you quarterly guidance. Don't ask for it." You know, they have yeah. put they have made statements around how they'll operate and lead their companies, um, and they and they have boards around them that support that position. Um, Jeff Bezos may be an extreme case. You know, at some point mm-hmm. you should have to turn a profit um, when you're that big, but for the most part, leaders who are know who they are and know what values they lead by and know what their companies stand for um, withstand that pressure in different ways. They don't, it's not that they don't feel it, but they don't um, succumb to it in ways that just get them on, on a treadmill of constantly having to succumb to it. And once you train those external f- sources of pressure that you will succumb to them, they just come, they just smell blood. Mm. That's interesting. Um, you know, we talked a lot in this uh, discussion about your book, to be honest. Um, and in, in preparation for today's discussion, we noticed on, on LinkedIn that one can actually download a copy for free, an assessment tool titled, How Honest Is My Team? What can that assessment reveal to leaders? Well, whether or not your team's telling you the truth. We took the four dimensions and we created a tool that would for the of, of indicators that would tell you, are these things happening around you? Um, and it gives you sort of a score on in each of those dimensions where you might have opportunity to increase your honesty quotient as a team. Um, I wanted people to be able to immediately act upon what they learned, um, whether they read the book or not. I wanted people to be able to think think in a scrutinizing way, in a very self scrutinizing way about. How, you know, uh, many leaders just assume, you know, well, of course my team's honest. Why, why, I mean, they don't lie to me. And I, I, I tell you, look, here's the, here's the litmus test. If you don't have somebody coming into your office at least once or twice a week saying something that makes you uncomfortable, your leadership sucks. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because they're telling, some, want to be they're telling somebody. Right? And if you have, even if you yeah. have a team of five people, mm-hmm. nothing in a week that, you know, that that's not worthy of your attention is, hasn't gone wrong. And so you have to ask yourself, why aren't they telling you? Every night around the dinner table of people you lead, stories about you are being told. 
every night. Mm-hmm. If you don't know what stories they're telling, you should want to get in on the conversation. That's that's a great way to think about it. <laughs> and I know it's true because I've done sure, it. Sure, we all do. <laughs> mm. Terrific. Well, Ron's book, Ron Carucci's book, to be honest, lead with the power of truth, justice, and purpose can be found at tobehonest.net. Tell me if I get this wrong, Ron, or navalent.com or wherever books are you sold. You nailed it, Gary. Thank you. Hmm. There's also, a, for those of interested, there's also um, one of the things we did as part of the research, We I videoed all the interviews of the heroes oh, wow. because I knew that I wouldn't be able to use all the material. So we created a TV series. It's, it's on oh, Roku. Great. It's also all, it's 15 episodes. It's called Moments of Truth. And it's uh, all 15 episodes are on tobehonest.net. So you can go binge watch them for a whole weekend um, oh, right, right next to your favorite Netflix show. So, so who are some of those heroes? Oh my gosh. Uh, Rob Balot. The attorney that led the, the takedown of Dupont, Hubert Jolie, um, Sun Yen Shang from Duke, uh, Tiffany right. Jana, um, Ed, Ed Townley from Cabot. Um, all their stories there on display. For, right. So 15 episodes. And I also had, I had several co hosts that I built the show with, they're 30 minute episodes, but other guests besides mine are there too. So you can get a really full, rich look at different views on truth, justice, and purpose. Terrific. Well, now I know what uh, my wife and I, I hope she's listening, are going to be doing uh, this weekend, Ron. That sounds like fun. Listen, thank you so much for being on The Crux and, and the group. Uh, my pleasure, today. gentlemen. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to The Crux, and make sure to listen for our next episode. Follow us at The Crux on Facebook and on Twitter, and you can find our episodes on SoundCloud and on our website, thecruxpodcast.org.